0: God's Word is endlessly rich and endlessly relevant because we don't just merely read it, it reads us. And as it does, the living Word of God does deep work in our hearts and our minds and as uh, the Spirit and the Word work together to bring renewal and transformation. We've been looking at uh, the letter to 1 John. We just started last week and we're going to take a number of weeks and sort of work our way through it and uh, massage it into our hearts and our minds. And uh, so our text for this morning, in light of the endless, endlessly good uh, Word of God, is the exact same text from last Sunday. Not because I'm phoning it in, but because each time we go to the goodness of God's Word, um, there are different things that we can look through, like the beauty of a prism uh, and all of the color that is uh, a result of the light shining through it, and god 's word can endlessly give us um, rich and deep things for us to consider and to direct our hearts and our minds towards. First John chapter one, the first 10 verses. That which was from the beginning, which we 've heard, which we 've seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we've seen it and testify to it and proclaim it to you, the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim to you so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we're writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message that we heard from him and we declare to you. God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, and yet we walk in the darkness, we lie and we do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we've not sinned, we make him out to be a liar. His word is not in us. This is God's word. This is a practical letter, like I said last week. It's a voice of comfort, as this old grizzled apostle, who has got the been there, done that t-shirt on suffering and hard times, is writing a warm letter to who he refers to as little children later. It's a warm letter, and it's given to us uh, to teach us a number of things. Namely, how to have joy. How do you be a Christian? What is the Christian's position in the world? In a world that is constantly draining us of joy. How are we to walk in Christ, live in the newness of Christ, and be people of joy? And I think the brevity of the letter uh, provokes us to think about a number of things. As I was considering this in teaching this morning, I considered a few things the brevity of that letter might suggest. The first would be, that there's an expectation that the Apostle has that the mature Christians are teaching the ways of God to the younger Christians. That the parents are teaching it to the next generation. I think there's an expectation because the letter is so brief and as you work your way through it, he is, he is alluding to powerful things like the confession of sin, turning from sin, walking in light, not walking in darkness. But he doesn't take go to endless lengths to define all those things. And I think the brevity of that ...points to the fact that he's, there's expectations that the mature ones are going to be giving of their time and of their lives to, to train uh, the immature ones. So I, I think, think that's one thing to consider. The other thing to consider is I think that the brevity of the letter invites us into meditation as a lifestyle. Because you have to remember, when these letters were being circulated, the codex hadn't been invented. People didn't have their own copies of the Torah... And every time they refer to the scriptures, the, the apostles are not referring to the letters that they are writing, though it is inspired by the Spirit and is scripture. They're referring to the Old Testament all, all the time. And so I think that the brevity of the letter teaches us as modern believers that we want to have a deep commitment and care to God's word and his ways so that we can share that with new believers among us, teach it to our children. I think the brevity suggests some of these things. But his focus is he wants the people uh, of God to be people of joy. So this letter serves kind of like a compass because he knows that as human beings, we are people of worship and we are people of meditation. And even if you are here today or you're watching us online and you're not a person of faith um, and worship is like a religious word, as humans... We all wake up in the morning and say, This is what gets me up in the morning. This is what my life is about. These are what my core values are. These are the things that are utmost important uh, to civil life and cause the city to flourish. And so I'm going to orient my life around these core values, these things, and um, this is why I get up in the morning. That is, for lack of a better term, worship. So there are cultural liturgies and political liturgies and commerce liturgies. I mean, the world is just full of ways in which we orient ourselves around something. And elevate it as the most important thing, that is worship. And we are also people of meditation. Again, even if you are a person of um, non-faith, um, meditation is the fixation of the mind, the fixation of the heart. So the apostles know that the human condition as creatures dependent on a creator is that we are people of worship and people of meditation. And even if you don't believe in a creator, and you somehow sort of suppress that knowledge in some way and you believe that uh, all of life and all of existence has spun into existence for no reason and there is no creator even if you believe that you are still habitually living your life as a creature orienting around something in worship and meditating in, in your mind and so worship and meditation are these key themes in trying to navigate these young believers into living lives of joy that's the explicitly stated purpose in verse four and as i said last week this joy is not like happiness where Trouble and circumstance come in like a tidal wave and then your happiness is swept out to sea. Joy for the Christian, joy as the apostles understood it and sort of enjoyed it, is like this buoyancy in the soul. So yes, trouble can come in and sweep your happiness out to sea, but it's not that the Christian is unaffected or stoic or weirdly happy all the time, because none of us are, but spiritual maturity looks like not being unaffected but being unsinkable. All of the apostles shared in this joy that was essentially unkillable, unsinkable, buoyant. And he wants the young ones to experience that. And when he's, when he's talking about the fellowship that he's enjoying with the Father and the Son, you notice in the beginning verses there, it's like he's basically saying, it's like, I want you to experience what we have experienced. I want you to share in the kind of fellowship that we've shared in. And this letter, like all letters, is given to the church that's experiencing prolonged difficulty. And whenever the church is in prolonged difficulty, there's always opportunity for panic. And it's interesting that none of the New Testament letters get very political, though they all could get extremely political because of what the church was dealing with. The letters never take a tone of alarm or panic. They're never taking this tone of sort of trying to fire up the Christian base to get riled up about what Rome is doing. The apostles never do that. It's like there is this goal in all of the New Testament letters to steady the church. Steady and stabilize the heart. Steady and stabilize the mind. Recalibrate the soul of the church to Christ so that they can live as people of joy and walk in light in and amongst darkness and be people of uh, image bearers of God in the world. And so they're never trying to fire them up, you know. Uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd Jones, who did a monster commentary on um, the letter to First John, well, all the, all the letters of John, and I've been u- making use of it in preparing for the series. And he makes a provocative statement, and he says, "There's times in church history where panic was mistaken for being spiritual." Well, how can that be? Well, when you look at the movements throughout church history, when you when the church gets panicked, that can sort of get masked in spiritualism and it's led the church historically into one of two ditches the first ditch is withdrawal from the from the culture when it becomes panic but that panic ends up gets wrapped up in spirituality oh well it's because i'm so holy and sanctified and i love jesus so much that i just can't bear to be around all the grossness in the city so i've withdrawn from it Right? So, so we've got lots of beautiful and wondrous things through monasticism like universities and hospitals and a lot of literature and education. And so I'm not, I'm not saying that all of the outworkings of monasticism were, were terrible because we've got beautiful things from them. However, there were aspects of monasticism that don't look anything like Jesus because Jesus did not withdraw from the city because the city was gross. But if you panic, you can withdraw. The other ditch that the church historically has got into is they posture themselves against the city and everything's a fight and everything's a battle and it's us versus them. And it's just like this, it's a weird religious expectation that those who don't love Jesus ought to behave like they love Jesus. And so in that context, the church is constantly pitted against the city and that again does not reflect the life and the ways of Jesus because Jesus did not do that either. In the way in which you, I mean, Jesus was going to parties that those Christians would not go to. And Jesus was not sinning at those parties, P.S., but Jesus was, Jesus was willing to be completely submerged into c- civic life without being affected or have his, his, his morality and his values changed by civic life. And so John, in this letter, doesn't strike a note of panic with what's going on at, with Rome at, at that point. And he, he could, because it wasn't an easy time to be a Christian anymore than it is easy today but the goal of spiritual maturity joy the life of joy looks like this steadiness if you look at the first two verses verse three verses i spent a lot of time on this last week so i'm not going to spend a lot of time today the first verse he's talking about god the eternal manifesting in jesus christ and coming into the material and he emphasizes that in this in verses two and three he's calling the church to have a conscious you know conscious possession of eternal life and this conscious enjoyment this conscious reflection of what it actually means because you want it to matter in the day-to-day uh, a lot of us own hammers uh, and a lot of us have been in a situation where you're using a screwdriver and then you realize in the middle of something that it would be good to have the hammer with you but you don't have the hammer so you turn the screwdriver around and you use the back of the screwdriver like a hammer many of us have have done this or you grab your shoe or you grab something close to you you're like i don't want to go and get the hammer and so you make a mess of whatever you're working on or you make a mess of your hand or you make a mess of both. You have a hammer. You own a hammer. You're not, there's no benefit to owning the hammer. And in that moment, um, it's, the hammer is of no value to you. And what John wants at the beginning of this letter, before he gets into the confession of sin, before he gets into the way that the believer ought to walk in light and darkness, before he gets into how do we posture ourselves towards the world, he starts with this, conscious celebration that he's inviting us into so that we can think very deeply about what it is that we have uh, in Jesus and that we can actually enjoy that. Or we can think about the fact that there's a certainty that comes with being emancipated not only from our sin, but emancipated from this kinds of constant wondering about our standing before God. So that from that posture of certainty and steadiness that we can then move into the spiritual disciplines that invite us into joy. Now in verses 5 to 7... He, he uses this strong vernacular of walking in darkness and walking in light. This walking in darkness is an idiom that the original audience would have been familiar with, of being covered in the dust of your rabbi. Walking so closely behind your teacher that the dust gets kicked up off their sandals and it covers you because you're so interested in emulating their life. So walking in darkness, walking in light. The apostle invites them into this, this intentional language, because he wants them to think about whose voice is in their ear. What has caused you to uh, define the things that are wise and good? And so what I want us to think about uh, as, as we consider walking in light and walking in darkness as a means to joy is actually if we go back to the beginning and we think about the fruit in Genesis 3, the, the, the act of rebellion against God, it teaches us some things. It's the sin under all sin. When they, when they took the fruit, it was an act of defining what was good for themselves. God had already defined what was good, but then they decided they would define what was good. God had already determined to fill them, but then they determined that they would fill themselves. And God had already set up a means by which they would understand the distinction between creator and creature, and they decided to remove that distinction and essentially operate as creator. In that original sin, we find that to walk in light, is to continue to allow God to define what is good. This is to walk in the light. We don't want to reduce this, and I'm going to get to it in a minute, but we don't want to just reduce this to checklists of, these are the things I'm doing good, therefore I'm walking in light. These are the list of sins, and I'm not doing those, therefore I'm 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 not walking in darkness. We don't want to reduce it to that, because there was a group in the New Testament that was checking all the right boxes, but Jesus never said good job. I'm not saying obedience isn't important. Obedience to God is of utmost importance. But obedience to God, devoid of the love of God, devoid of the peace of God, the joy of God, the compassion of God, that's of no significance. And that's why Jesus had nothing good to say about the Pharisees. He never once said, good job, you've checked all the boxes. And there were 613 of them. And they were checking them better than anybody. So to walk in the light, this is more than just reducing Christian to the Christianity to the moral game, because that's not going to produce any joy in you or in your children. But when we blow Christianity out into the grandness of how this text begins with the goodness of Jesus, what it invites us into is to realize that actually to walk in light is to image something, it's to resemble God, it's to reflect His goodness, it's actually to walk more in, more in congruence with who I was created to be. To borrow from N.T. Wright, the historian, he says it this way, When you see someone who is sick or diseased and deteriorating and they're on their deathbed, sometimes people will use the phrase, they are a shadow of their former selves. You see, what sin means in the life of the believer is that you and I right now, we are a shadow of our future selves. The renewal of the Spirit is moving us closer and closer toward our future selves. To walk in the light is to move closer and closer to our future selves. The obedience that the Christians are called to is to be clothed in the reflection of God demonstrated in Jesus, described by the apostle as the fruit of the spirit. That obedience is going to be framed in love, joy, peace, long suffering, kindness, goodness. Faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That did not describe the Pharisees' approach to obedience. So see, I'm not, my goal this morning is not to diminish your idea of obedience. It's actually to escalate your idea of obedience, to recognize, praise Jesus for his grace, because neither you nor I are walking in that kind of obedience. I mean, we can check the boxes, but is the way in which, others experience us in this room and out in the city, is it like the love of Jesus? And you and I have to confess. The answer to that is, sometimes. So praise God for His grace. The Apostle starts us in that kind of certainty, so that by the time we get to the confession of sin, which is coming up, we're not dragging our knuckles in in, in, in sorrow, but rather that we would actually look towards confession as a means of obtaining greater joy. And I said last week, and I'm going to repeat it here, as we're moving into this idea about the confession of sin and what we were created for, we want to frame that in the walking in light. We were created to be be these image bearers of God. And so we only, our, our, our spirit and our soul really only run on one thing, and that is the worship and the enjoyment of God. If I was to take a Formula One race car and put it at a gas pump anywhere in this city, pick one. It wouldn't matter which one you pick. That engine would not turn over because the, the grade of fuel is too low and it was created for something much higher. And the Apostle is inviting us in this call to not walk in darkness but to walk in light, to recognize we were created for something much higher. To learn to not look at how the world around us Defines the way that we ought to think about our identity, our meaning, our purpose. The poor, the outcast, the refugee, the ethics of mercy and justice, the ethics of sexuality, and just basically, you know, click to subscribe to the the cultural podcast and allow that to frame the way that we relate to all those of those things. To walk in light is to say all of those things have to be taken with an asterisk. To say, does it or does it not? Aligned with the wisdom and the goodness of my God. And if there is an incongruence between any of the messages of our culture and the wisdom of my God, then I need to bend my knee to the wisdom of my God and trust that this is going to lead to my flourishing and my good. And so when we get to the confession on, on sin, notice that he says, he puts it two ways. He says, if we say that we don't have any sin or we deny that we have any sin, we're lying. So if I don't confess my sin, that'll drain me of my joy. But if I deny and I say I don't have sin, that'll also drain me of my joy. And the goal here is to live a life of joy. And I wonder, it's like, was it necessary to say deny sin? I mean, who, which Christian have you ever met who's like, no, I don't sin? What I kind of like, yeah. So it's like, why would you write that denial of sin? Well, it could come in two ways. The first way I just mentioned to you. If your way of understanding this world is essentially through the um, assimilating the wisdom of the world, then it's quite possible that you have had your ethics formed in some way that in your mind it's not sin. God's defined what's good, but the world has defined what's good in a different way, and you said, no, it's, it's actually fine. That could, that could be one way. So we have to search our hearts. In what ways may I have grown congruent? with the way the world is called something good. But the other way to deny our sin is the way the Pharisees denied it. And it's to be blinded by our own box checking. The Pharisees were so blinded by their own box checking, they were always on some burdensome mission to expose somebody else's sin. And Jesus was like, people are more burdened after they meet with you. You're so contrary to the heart of God in the way that you approach sin. You're so convinced that your box checking means that you're you somehow without this sin. You're like fixated on everybody else's sin. And so that can be another way that we would deny sin because in our, we've somehow become sort of self-righteous. And so since we, there's nothing we need to confess, <laughs> confess, we'll just busy ourselves with what the person next to us is doing. And so this could be another possible sort of outworkings of this sort of denial of sin. But of course there's no joy in any of that. And so when we confess our sin, who are we to confess it to? We confess it to God, of course, and as we confess to God, there's this forgiveness. The text goes on to say, He is just, and He will forgive us, and He will purify us and cleanse us. So there's a joy that comes from that confession. But also, there's a confession to the one that we've sinned against. The people sitting in this room with us, namely. Our own families, friends, co-workers. The people that we've wronged. There's a joy that comes from this confession. How is this possible? Because confession is humbling. Confession is transforming. Confession makes us people of joy because it drains us of our pharisaical pride. And then it enables us to relate to the sin of others with patience and long-suffering. Because we recognize that God is relating to us with patience and long-suffering. Because when you think about the way that God deals with your sin... That gives birth to joy. And then that frames the way that you'll deal with the sin of the people around you. When you think about the beginning of Genesis 3 and when all of the beauty is brought into destruction, God doesn't respond with a backhand across the face, you know, sending them to the stars. God asks them some diagnostic questions. And those diagnostic questions are good for us. Ask ourselves diagnostic questions when we fall into sin because it it frames our understanding of how God is dealing with us and how we will therefore deal with others. When they sinned, God said, first of all, where are you? So where are you? I mean, how did you get here? What are the choices and decisions that you made? How how did you conclude that the the, the way in which you have sort of handled this or dealt with this is somehow... You know, congruent with my ways and it's not. God asks where are you? And then after he asks where are you he says who told you? So this is is getting back to the voice. The walking in light or the walking in darkness. Who told you? Where did you get this wisdom? On what basis is this true? On on the basis of whose wisdom is this true? Where are you? What did you do? I'm sorry. Who told you? Then he says what did you do? Leading into the confession of what you've actually done. The outworkings of it. And then the last thing is not I'm going to destroy you. The last thing is, I'm coming to rescue you. The first preaching of the gospel was from God to the devil in Genesis 3. And he will bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. The wounded warrior, it shows up on the first page of your Bible. This is how God deals with sin. This is how God deals with your sin. There is this beauty and patience and just cosmic levels of grace that you do not understand. So when we're dealing with one another's sin, you see this reframes it. So we don't ignore sin. We're not soft on sin. We're like, I'll just bat our eyes and be like, it's all okay. No, it's not all okay. But the way in which we, we do this, it frames it. Matthew 18 is a good picture of the practical outworkings of how to deal with sin. Right? At the end of it, we're most familiar with that if you've been in church for a while. It's like, first you go to the person in church who's offended you, and you have a discussion about the offense. And that it's a sin and how it's offended you. And if that doesn't go well, then you bring somebody else with you. And if that doesn't go well, then you bring the church. So do you notice how long this is taking? It's long and patient and gracious. It's the way God deals with you. The last thing that you do after all of those dialogues don't go well is then you invite the church and then the church gets involved if it's still not going well. And the purpose of church authority and church discipline is not punitive it is restorative. Why? Because the heart of our God, when he comes to us in sin, is not just punitive. It is restorative. So the way in which, God, the way in which Matthew 18 is framed, the way in which this text is framed, the way in which confession of sin is framed, is, is in the heart and the nature of God. But before you even get to that portion of Matthew 18, on the, on the working through the confession of sin... It starts with Jesus putting a little child in the middle of the disciples. A picture of utter dependency. And Jesus says, if you're not like this, you can't be a part of the kingdom. We all know children aren't innocent. Some of us have had children. They're not innocent. But they are dependent. So we must be dependent. After that image, he gives the parable of leaving the 99 to find the one. Okay, well, you don't leave 99 sheep and find one in five minutes. So again, there's the long suffering, there is the patience, there is the kindness, there is the going and the seeking and the drawing the one back to the 99. And then after you get the picture of the 99, then you get the image of, uh, that I just said to you about the dealing with the sin in a restorative way with your brother, your sister in the church. And then after that, you get the parable of the unforgiving servant. And the parable of the unforgiving servant is one guy owes a debt he can never pay, he's forgiven of it, and then another guy owes him 10 bucks and he does a $10 sin and he's just throttling the guy. And it's a picture of someone who has no concept of what they've received because the way in which they deal with sin is nothing like Jesus and everything like the Pharisees. Do you see all of this? So the the beginning of this letter is inviting us into um, these ways of thinking about grace and joy that come through confession because the letter is moving. And I'm not going to get into it now. This is where we're headed. The letter moves towards the Christian's position in the world. And the reason I've taken two weeks to hammer this, and I could probably unpack it for many more weeks, is because if we do not have a, a posture of compassion, we will have a posture of contempt. And before you get to chapter 5, where John explicitly says in the text, we are of God and the world is in the grip of the evil one, what does, what does that give rise to in you? If we don't get the posture of confession right, we won't be people of compassion. We'll read, we are of God. And the world is in the grip of the evil one. Off with their heads. Let's get out there and tell them how terrible they are. This is our message. Was Jesus soft on sin? No, he died for our sin. Is the New Testament soft on sin? No. Should you and I be soft on sin and ignore sin? No, we should hate it. Hate our own. Hate it so deeply that it shifts our posture into a love and a compassion towards because we recognize what we have been forgiven of. And so our way in relating to other sin is with a patience and a long suffering and a kindness because they're still in the grip of their sin. And so we relate to them like our loving Savior, Jesus Christ. I close with this. I close by focusing you on the goodness of the gospel. If you look back at verse 1, verse 1 looks like he's repeating himself, but he's not repeating himself. He says, we've seen with our eyes and we looked upon. Seen and looked upon. Those are two different things. To see is to just see something. You can walk down the street and become cognizant and aware and give something a cursory look. To see. John, and he's taking, going to a lot of lengths to say that Jesus was God-made flesh, so we saw him. But then John spent the last 50 years now looking upon him. To see is to see, and to look upon is to gaze, and to meditate, and to wonder, and be amazed by, and to examine, and to imagine. And so you and I are being invited into not just seeing Jesus. Yep, got it. My sins are forgiven. Got it. Thanks, preacher. Got it. No, we have to gaze upon him. Because to continually look upon him, and John has been, he's an old guy when he writes this letter, he's been looking upon Jesus for 50 years after the resurrection, and that is what will make us bold and humble to go into this city, those who are anchoring themselves every day to something that's going to eventually prove to be uncertain and to declare to them what has been declared to us, the thing that will put buoyancy in the soul, joy that is well supplied, by by meditating and gazing upon the hope that is certain, Christ alone. Let's pray.